From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The intersection of information and conversation. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the third hour of Weekends with me here, Saturday edition on TNT Radio. And my next guest is Richard Kelly. Richard is a retired business analyst who, after a short period as a high school maths teacher, spent his career in insurance and wealth management in a variety of roles, including a trainee actuary, group insurance systems implementation, project management, business analysis, product development and marketing. He is a born and bred Victorian from Melbourne in Australia. He was devastated by the way his beloved Melbourne was laid waste during the COVID era and appalled by the failure of institutions to protect rights and freedoms. And he's convinced justice will be served one day. And he's a married father of three adult children. Richard Kelly, welcome and thank you for joining me on weekends. No, thanks very much. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's uh, it's wonderful to have you, Richard, and uh, like you, I think too, that uh, justice will be served one day. Just in the last hour, we just had on two ladies um, representing Team Assange in Julian Assange's case, and that is just another one of these glaring injustices that we see, that a man can be held up in a prison for simply acting as a journalist and as someone who is also out there writing. How do you feel about that particular case? Um, is, is it another one of these things that maybe one day justice will be served? Yeah, look, uh, I think I've changed my perspective on the Julian Assange um, case. He, you know, when when that first happened, I gladly went along or unthinkingly went along with the idea that he should be uh, uh, prosecuted, (laughs) ended up being persecuted. And so, um, yeah, I think that is a grave miscarriage of justice. The last few years have uh, opened my eyes and I think the eyes of many others to just how uh, strongly the media is able to uh, present a narrative uh, that may not necessarily be all sides at once and, and can lead, you know, lead opinion that way. So, yeah, I think uh, Julian Assange needs needs justice. No, absolutely. It's it's one of those stories, isn't it, that you've got an Australian just uh, rotting there and the government just doesn't seem to be interested, despite we learnt that uh, dozens of uh, MPs of all political persuasions came out late last year in support and still there's this stonewall that comes from the very top and it just feels like that our government is uh, perhaps taking orders from someone else and not representing its own people. But this is a common thread, right, because as we said before, the idea of living in Victoria over the last few years must have been horrific. And unfortunately, I have to announce that you may not have been aware of, but Brett Sutton, the former health uh, chief health officer, was yet again awarded, this time an Australian Order of Australia yesterday in the Australia Day Honours. I'm assuming that that's making you feel a little bit queasy. Yes. Well, I try not to think about Brett Sutton, and I hope his uh, awards uh, make him happy, uh, and perhaps <laughs> they'll, they'll give him an opportunity to go on an uh, extensive speaking tour uh, overseas, preferably. <laughs> um, but you're right, Brett Sutton was a de facto um, uh, ruler of Victoria yeah. for quite a long time. Uh, he he announced measures that made everybody's lives miserable uh, to no good effect. There was, in the end, there was there was no no productive benefit from his orders. Closing a playground had no effect other than to make people miserable. The other the other mess, 
uh, measures that he imposed were only destructive. People lost jobs, marriages, um, their wealth, and you know a positive outlook on life was was very hard to find during those years. So I wish Brett Southern all the best. That is uh, the, the kindest uh, a, a response to Brett Sutton's Order of Australia that I've heard from the people that I've spoken to since uh, he, he received that award yesterday because many of us were hoping that um, that these people would disappear potentially um, uh, and justice be served, and yet this is where we are today. Now, yeah. um, you're a prolific uh, writer these days, uh, and you're also a prolific reader, and I can tell by the uh, the library behind you that this is oh, one, yeah. of the, one of the beautiful things that uh, you get to do in, uh, in this period of retirement. Um, one of the things that I picked out um, that you see, you recently attended the Science and Freedom Conference uh, yeah. in Sydney, and uh, you write about in in this particular story how you quit the Lions Club, citing uh, Vaclav Havel's essay, "The Power of the Powerless." Can you tell me how that all came together? Mm, okay, well, uh, let's start with Vaclav's essay, Vaclav Havel's essay, uh, which was written in 1978. He's a Czech dissident, and uh, he he's he's um, his essay really revolves around this vignette of a greengrocer who one day decides not to put in his window a sign that says workers of the world unite because he, he finally snaps. And Vaclav Havel points out that the act of putting that sign in his window, like everybody else, like like the officers, like uh, every, every shop window had these signs, uh, was itself an act of compliance with the regime. And uh, by, by doing that, he was strengthening the regime. And when he finally snaps, he, he realises the consequences are, are very swift in coming. You know, his kids can't go to the schools he wants, he can't get a holiday, he can't travel, he loses his job, he's demoted. Um, but he, at the same time, he says the 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 powerless people like that greengrocer uh, do in fact have the power at any moment in this through their daily lives where every every aspect of their life is controlled by the regime any point of that any any moment in that day he can break through and live according to the truth and so it's it's very very powerful just to just the simple act of removing that sign um, uh, enabled him to live in the truth that came at a cost but he was living truthfully and Havel points out that the um the aims of life are to live fruitfully and have meaning and to enjoy uh, the, the things that are offered to us in this world in this life and that includes uh you know the joy of eating and drinking with family and friends of observing nature of of uh, you know traveling of of playing music, of listening to concerts, that sort of thing, reading. Um, and you can do all that, and the government cannot uh, influence you to do that, so or to stop you doing that. They can lock you up, but they still can't uh, ultimately take away your choice to live truthfully and to pursue a meaningful life. And the way to do that is to um, engage with your local community, do things that make you happy and that provide meaning. So. The Lions Club for me was seemed to fit the bill perfectly for um, you know such activity. You know, I, I joined the Lions uh, willingly, and you know for for quite a while I was uh, happy to um, uh, more than happy to 
help with the mowing of the grass at the cemetery or to be a volunteer marshal for the bike ride. Uh, Kellerman's Great Ocean Road race is on today. We've just been watching it on the TV. Um, you know, do, do the sausage sizzle, buy the, buy the sausages for the Bunnings uh, event. But um, ultimately that, that was a, a stopgap because it's not enough to mow the grass at the cemetery if you can't talk about the things that are important for your uh, to have, for you to have a meaningful life. For me, those things were the atrocities that were visited upon us in the last four years, and uh, I I don't want to upset uh, a group of well-meaning, uh, decent octogenarians by bringing that sort of stuff up at, at the monthly dinner. And so, um, you know, I felt that by not saying things, I was essentially leaving the sign in the window that says workers of the world unite or, you know, uh, stay COVID safe, you know, that sort of sign, uh, which still exists in the, in the meeting rooms uh, around our town. Um, and so I quit the lines. I quit immediately after I attended the conference, the inaugural conference for Australians for Science and Freedom, because there I found people with whom I could have these conversations. Not only that, um, not only could I have these conversations, but people would listen to me and I would listen to them. I heard their stories and they heard my stories. Um, and so having had that experience, I came back from the conference and thought, you know, I, I don't need to be pretending uh, that, it, or that it all is well when I'm sitting at the Lions uh, dinner. I, I, I shouldn't be doing that. So, so I regretfully, in a, in a sense, I resigned from the Lions um, with no hard feelings, of course, but yeah, that's, that's why I quit. I think it's a terrific story and beautifully told that only I suppose that somebody who's well read and 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 writes beautifully would be able to share. So thank you for for, for doing that. But uh, I suppose we can spin off a little bit and uh, you then talk about the Science and Freedom Conference that mm. TNT Radio was a big part of, uh, and uh, and you mentioned that uh, many people were quite um, innovative and were taking photos of slides, etc., almost um, trying to um, to uh, create and prove that they were there and that the information that they were receiving was very very real, but you wrote of um, the idea that um, you just let it all wash over you. And I suppose as we sort of delve into some of your writing, is that a technique of uh, absorbing, therefore, and allowing yourself the ability to have, I suppose, some form of perspective when you think about the next story that you want to tell? Um, I don't go looking really for stories. Stories seem to find me when when something rankles me or um, when uh I'm struggling to make sense of conflicting, uh, you know, contradictions. Uh, then, then I start to think about how how to make a story. But um, yeah, no, I wasn't really adapting, uh, adopting a technique of of um, you know some sort of James Joyce stream of consciousness to to come up with a story. Uh, the The conference was terrific in that um, the the openness of the audience to hear a range of perspectives from people was was very um very gratifying to know that there were people like me willing to listen to other people 
tell the stories that just don't get told in the media. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's certainly a big deal. Now, how does someone go from business analyst virtually to actuary and then ends up a writer? Are you just multi-skilled or did you find that one part of your life just sort of ran out of interest and you wanted to get into the more creative side of things? Uh, Well, one goes from trainee actuary uh, to business analyst by failing to pass the last few exams to be an actuary. So (laughs) um, it's a lot of maths, uh, which I managed to uh, clear all those mathematics and statistics hurdles, but the the final sort of professional subjects did me in. And after 10 years or so, I stopped trying to uh, do that. So, yeah, I switched into business analysis, which gave me a broader sort of role across the company to t- two different projects. Um, and then you know, to, to, to writer, well, that was really an outworking of the failure, I think, of our democratic process our democratic system as it stands today because you know when things go wrong what the conventional approach uh, people are expected to follow is to write to your mp and so when um you know scott morrison begins talking in i think april 2020 about the possibility of locking even april or may he was talking about vaccine passports i think Anyway, in April 2020, I wrote a letter to Scott Morrison. It was a speech for him to give. I didn't expect him to give it, but I did expect a, at least some sort of substantive reply. But I got just a pro forma from the office, you know, the Prime Minister's office. Thanks for your, thanks for your little note. <laughs> um, and every mainstream outlet was the same. Journalists, think tanks. Um, Nobody gave me a substantive reply to my my objections to what was going on. And so um, I didn't know. That was my plan A, and plan A failed miserably. Then, you know, uh, after two years, so 2020, I wrote, to, I wrote this speech from Morrison, and then it was only in October 2022 that I finally sent the same speech with a with an update um, to Jeffrey Tucker at Brownstone Institute, and Jeffrey, to my very great surprise, wrote back within minutes and said, "You know, I'll publish that. I just need a bio and a pic." So um, that was really the beginning of my writing in October twenty two. That I'd been stewing on the, these injustices for two years, and with no you know plan A was. <laughs> Was fruitless, and that Plan B was to to write about it, and and thankfully Brownstone, uh, and subsequently Spectator, gave me a platform to to say things. So that's how that worked, and I'm still going. I haven't stopped. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, how opportunity can present itself at uh, the most uh, inopportune times. But of course, necessity being the mother of invention. For mine, I got started um, uh, comparing COVID statistics. That's why I was interested uh, in your actuary uh, background there because mm. I couldn't believe what I was being told versus what I was reading when it was printed um, uh, right in front of my face on official government health websites, and it wasn't adding up whatsoever. We could already see way back in the beginning that um, uh, who it was affecting, uh, survival rates, etc., yeah. and realising that there was no threat. In fact, um, not many people are aware of this, but before the, um, uh, the jab was released, here in Australia, there wasn't a single female in Australia under the age of 50 that died from COVID, not one. 
not a single one. And of course, that was never mentioned. But uh, when the uh, when it came out, of course, there was a big lineup. And suddenly, of course, then we started seeing the statistics starting to tick up, which was uh, very, very um, uh, inconvenient for the uh, so-called government and their truth that they were trying to get out there. And it wasn't the case at all. And it's quite amazing when you start doing a little bit of uh, research using primary sources, you start to see a very different narrative unfolding. Richard, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation because we're only just getting started. You um, uh, obviously, it was a talent that came a little bit later in life, but you're a wonderful writer, and I want to get into some more of the uh, writing that you've done, and we'll take that break now on weekends and have more here with Richard um, and myself on weekends on TNT Radio. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says, the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled, and she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind... I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay, because I've got other priorities in a in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, as you can see, is Richard Kelly, and we are talking about his journey from numbers to letters or from going from business analysis back to uh, to writing and becoming quite a prolific writer, as we're seeing on uh, your Substack and, of course, that you've been published now, Spectator Brownstone. How could people find your Substack, um, Richard? Uh, it's pretty easy, richardkelly.substack.com. Uh, that's the best place. All my stuff gets written there. Uh, some, some of it gets picked up by the Spectator. Or Brownstone. But, and TCW had something in the conservative woman, which I'm very happy about. Oh, wonderful. Now, yeah. gaslighting is a story that uh, most of us are sick and tired of being told yeah. that something is happening, and you've written about it. And in a story that you mentioned the term marmalade droppers, you wrote, what great stuff, plastic bag recycling, Aussie rules, footy, cricket dismissals, phonics in schools, a reporter sent to a war zone, a spectator at the bankruptcy of Third World Victoria epitomised by the cancellation of the Commonwealth Games and the airport rail. 
uh, an enormous gaping hole in the coverage, just like there's an enormous gaping space in the foyers of office towers all over the city as the utter destruction of our once beautiful Melbourne echoes the utter destruction of lives and livelihoods caused by mask mandates, social distancing, vaccine mandates, nothing about the mor morality of excluding people from daily society, no mention of excess mortality, no mention of the forest of the fallen, nothing about the imminent WHO changes, nothing about the dangers of the digital ID or misinformation bill, nothing about the risk of CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. Evidently, the editor sees no responsibility to our readers and to our society in general in respect of these issues. It's so true, and it's a very reason why so many people have switched off from the mainstream media as the purveyors of all information that's meant to be out there. It has to be the ultimate turnoff. How is it that we've been gaslit so far, and why is it? Is it just a case of blanket censorship that no, it, that ignorance is bliss? We don't know. We don't care. It's a, I think the, mostly it's the framing and the selection of stories that get into the media. Um, you know, all of those things that the uh, that what, what you quoted was uh, from an email that got sent to subscribers of one of the Melbourne major daily papers. It used to be called the big paper as opposed to the little paper because it used to be a broadsheet and the other paper was a tabloid. Uh, but without mentioning, we'll call it the big paper. And the, this editor uh, has taken upon himself to write every Friday to all his subscribers, you know, big noting what how great they are. And, you know, they list those stories that they've covered in the last 12 months or the last whenever since he's been editor and you know as he writes each friday's newsletter news uh, email he, he's got a shrinking pool of things to boast about but um you know none of those big things were were the real big things you know you write about the melbourne airport rail uh, or the, losing the commonwealth games yeah great but um you know, you didn't touch on the on the important things and most uh, the event that's been the most biggest upheaval in in our lives and lifetimes, and probably will remain that way. Um, I don't know how how you can carry on uh, paying for and reading that stuff if if the big things aren't in there. I think it's it's about the selection of the stories. For instance, what what's going on in France right now and in Texas? You know, with the National Guards of other states coming along to help uh, secure the border, despite the, uh, you know Biden's moves to the contrary. That's that's not covered in the age. Oops, mm. I said the big paper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's, it's it's so true, isn't it, um, that uh, the selection of stories is the biggest indicator. You don't even have to write about a story. You just have to ignore it uh, and it will go away. And yeah. uh, and like you said, at the Texas border there, what's interesting about that particular story is that there's now a, um, a unity between uh, Donald Trump and Robert Kennedy Jr. coming to, uh, to 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 the table together on that particular story, um, and I find that fascinating too because at long last we're finally seeing the so-called political opposites, uh, which there must be an undercurrent underneath that story there, but coming together and seemingly against the tide of establishment politics. For mine, it's always the establishment, the the the, the, the too much power that uh, is the problem here, and and of course that power has permeated into the media that now does the bidding almost like they're a mercenary or they're a pirate working for the government rather than scrutinising the government, which is their duty in the first place. Um, so I guess there's some positive signs there that, the, that, that some change has to happen, but it's 
it's so slow. And of course, in the process, our institutions um, uh, just become almost irrelevant because you can't seem to rely on anyone. And even when you get a decision, you just don't want to even believe what they tell you. Mm. No one's coming over the hill. The, I don't think any of our institutions are, are fit for purpose anymore. Um, that's why they keep coming back to Backlove Hubble, you know, community, mm. local, do things yourself. Um, uh, there, perhaps perhaps there is a way back for our institutions and that's certainly what uh, Australians for Science and Freedom are hoping to mm. to improve uh, through through beginning their own initiatives around education, for example, and uh, some other some other ideas, health. Uh, but but starting again, you know, not not really trying to reform the TGA or uh, the universities, but but beginning our own university, you know, beginning uh, local, uh, informal, but networks of health professionals who are able to treat people, you know, under a different paradigm. So. Um, I don't think I, I, I think our institutions could be saved, but it's better, I think, to model what a good institution would be and, and replace it or supplement it at least. Supplement the ones that are failing. Um, if we can go back um, just a, a little bit there, when you talked about your plan A. Uh, in the previous segment, and then you move on and you talk about a plan B and a plan C. And the reason I bring that up is I, I want to talk a little bit about that and then tie it back into the development uh, of the institutions that we want. Can you tell us a bit more about what you did when you realised that the letter writing campaign was not going to work and you wanted to do, go and do something else? Yeah, so so plan, plan B was really to try to establish more independence for myself. Um, so it, it's been a very pathetic outcome so far i must admit you know i i harvested some potatoes today from growing some potatoes in bags and got maybe enough for enough for um you know two or three meals tops and so but nevertheless uh, zucchini is growing well so the idea of growing your own food and and becoming just that little bit every mouthful of of, of zucchini that you haven't bought from the shop is a reason that you know is a way it's a it's a finger in the eye to Woolworths for example you don't have to go and buy that from them today so even if I do have to go and buy something from them tomorrow then I've, I've at least cut down some spending and I've you know bolstered my own uh, you know resilience a little bit so things like that joining joining local networks like I used to be a member of the lines as we spoke about in the first segment but um, you know that's no longer but the you know my local church and other other groups around town that are important network for for me and for, for them as well. Um, so that's sort of plan B is become more independent, become more local, uh, can try to use cash, um, that that sort of thing, store store food. And, you know, I don't, I'm not, not a doomsday prepper. I wouldn't last very long. I don't think I've probably got some, you know, two or three weeks worth of food in the pantry, but... Mm. I think it's an attitude as much as anything else that, you know, I'm not going to rely on the government to save me or give me a universal income, but but I will try to do whatever I can. 
So that's plan B because um, I liken it to very, very simple that um, we've been told or we've been programmed in a way through our education system, which has become an indoctrination system, the idea that we were told not to go and do our own research on the solution to the problem that apparently has no origin, Richard. We still don't know where this particular virus came from at an official level. And so for mine, it was always a case of self-sufficiency. If you could be self-sufficient, then you were at least resistant to the next knock on the door that said that you had to do this um, and uh, and behave in a certain way. So I um, I certainly appreciate uh, that, that self-sufficiency is, is step one. And then, of course, we kind of got um, some big ideas. It's one thing to grow um, uh, some zucchinis in the backyard or cucumbers, as they are in my case, and we have an abundance of spinach at my house, but um, not enough recipes to consume it. Um, but then you get to the next level and all of a sudden you're thinking, maybe Maybe I should go out and buy a farm somewhere, a hobby farm, farmlet, something like that, maybe even be involved in some fractional farming. Did you explore that concept as well? Uh, only in my head. I haven't really acted on that or, or gone very far with that. It's something that I, that I would like to do, but I think, you know, I, we don't even have a quarter acre block where I am, so I'm struggling to keep on top of that. So I, I don't know that it's really a viable mm. option unless unless I was to partner with someone who had experience or, you know, knew how to drive a tractor, for example, which I don't know how to do. Um, I'm sure it's not that hard. But, uh, yeah, mentally I would, I would love to have, a, you know, a remote place that was completely off-grid and, you know, uh, that I could butcher livestock from time to time and, um, you know, grow my own food. That would be great. You know, but I do know how to do other things. Like I, I can brew my own beer, so I've got, I've got some supplies of that laid in. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the fun thing, isn't it? Because it, it, it's almost like we're going through an information World War Three, uh, and 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 we talked about gaslighting and the idea that uh, that what we know is going on versus what we're told are two very very different things. And uh, we're talking about Plan B and Plan C, and it comes from a story you wrote uh, called "I'm Not Going Anywhere." And the quote that I uh, wanted to mention, this little uh, paragraph that you wrote, you said, "But that's not what we have. Instead of such resetting of the cornerstones of our democracy, the will of the people being restored to the pinnacle, and the government installed by our consent." We have even more draconian rules to suppress those who object. Censorship, power grabs and digital tracking. Great, when we see no repentance, but rather a continuation and escalation of the catastrophic policies that got us into this mess, it's hard to continue to believe it's just all one big mistake. That's the part that just punched me right in, in, in the guts and said, Richard is right onto this. And that's the point, isn't it? How can you expect, and this is going back to where I said about the institutions, um, how can you expect any form of change when it just gets getting blown up and blown up and blown up and thinking that they're just going to call it one big mistake? There is no way that they're ever going to back down on any of it, even admit a single thing. No, it's troubling, isn't it? Because without a, an admittance of a problem or a mistake, uh, you can't find the course correction that's going to be needed um yeah i mean without without repentance you, you can't find uh, truth i don't think and the our institutions aren't going to do that they, they'll fight tooth and nail they will double down quadruple down uh on their error and you know the the, the way to the way they're doing that at the moment is to keep pushing for example the who um, grab for power uh, that will absolve the parliaments of nations that sign up 
to those that new treaty or the new international health regulations that are associated with it. Uh, that will absolve them of responsibility for the actions that the WHO demand. And so you know, th that push is essentially a doubling down of the, the measures we saw last time. Uh, same with CDBC, I mean, central bank digital currencies. They have the potential to be the end game, I think, if, mm. if they ever get brought in and are programmable to the point where you, you can only spend your money in certain places or at certain times or with regard to certain limits on certain things, uh, then we're cooked. So, yeah. that, that, That's so true, isn't it? Because the whole idea of the microchip under the skin, when you're at CBDC level, you, you, you're really only um, one chapter away from that final result, which for many is considered to be the mark of the beast uh, and, and definitely at endgame status at that point. It's quite frightening uh, that you would even think that that's the case. So. I, I really, it gets under my skin, this whole WHO situation. You've got Tedros coming out and crying poor and crying victim and Bill Gates, the same thing. And this is another one of these gaslighting scenarios. But if we're ever going to get to the COVID origins, it's really interesting that you bring that up, that the idea that uh, it might absolve um, uh, individual countries if they sign up to a form of a WHO pandemic treaty, that they can put their hands up and say, well, it's up to the WHO to investigate themselves here, like they did when they sent Peter Daszak over when Joe Biden sent him over. Over to, to to Wuhan to um uh to to go and investigate himself, um you realise that the sting was in. Mm, yeah, the fix is in. Um, WHO, I don't I don't know where we can how we can get around that. I mean, my my understanding is that the all the mechanisms are already in place in Australia for for us to obey, regardless of what the progress of the IHR. Um, the regulations and the treaty itself, yeah. and we saw in in practice, we saw that anyway. That's that that's what happened. Mm. Um, at the ASF conference, for example, one one of the presenters uh, was retelling. He was a, a podcaster, and he retold the way his uh, YouTube channel was censored, and he got he managed to get a reply from YouTube, uh, and. It admitted that they didn't set the rules, but the WHO set the rules mm. for what they must take down. <laughs> so we've got a fait accompli. It, 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 that's how it happens now, regardless of the protestations of, of people like Senator uh, Katie Gallagher in in responding to, I think it was Ralph Babette's questions about the WHO regulations. Uh, he's, he claimed there's no impact on Australia's sovereignty, yada, yada. Uh, despite that, uh, this is how it happens. YouTube channels get taken down at the behest of the WHO. So we have already, in that sense, lost a great deal of our sovereignty. We certainly have. Um, just to, to recall, I, I published on my YouTube channel a speech from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, mm -hmm. uh, specifically talking about um, uh, vaccine mandates 
Uh, and uh, two years after it was published, I got a, a note saying it had been taken down for a breach. Same thing, challenged it and uh, and, and and quoted and references, et cetera, and whatever. Not interested. They just took it down and that was the end of it. And being taken down on uh, YouTube is, is a funny sort of scenario because um, they play a three strikes within a certain period of time. If you have three strikes and and, and then they just take your channel out. So um, it's 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 odd, isn't it, that we have this particular scenario. It's, it's kind of irrelevant to the facts of the day. It's simply that someone is in charge, an institution that's privately organised and run, funded by a private citizen, uh, Bill Gates, that's never been elected to office, never finished um, a college degree, is not a doctor, and yet has the power to tell us not only what we've got to put under our skin, but now uh, that the climate and, of course, how we're going to eat in the future, despite the fact that we've got to eat plastic food and he's allowed to buy up all the farms and no one gives a hoot in power, and somehow it comes back to the citizens again. And we circle back and talk about building institutions. I'll pause on that note because we'll take a break and we'll come back for our final segment and uh, we'll talk more with Richard Kelly after the break. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Here's what's making news. news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. US Vice President Kamala Harris has been called out for her hypocrisy after sensationally warning Americans not to vote for Donald Trump because he'd go after his political enemies. In a stunning show of solidarity, 25 US states have vowed to stand with Texas in its fight to defend the southern border. And a new survey has found 28% of Generation Z adults in America are now either gay, lesbian, bisexual, or something else entirely. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour is Richard Kelly, who is writing for The Spectator, Brownstone Institute, and on his uh, substack, richardkelly.substack.com. Richard, vaccine rates have fallen. Quick, let's vaccinate more people. Goodness me, does this thing ever, ever end? Mm. Well, you're, what you're referring to there is uh, an article I wrote responding to a report put out by the Grattan Institute. And I mean, I must admit that I read that report with a very critical frame of reference because uh, that's that's the way I've come to view anything they've written about uh, vaccines. But what stood out to me about that was the naked agreed for government taxpayer money to do this or do that. I think I can't quite recall what the sum total 
of the amounts requested, but it would be close to $100 million uh, for this program or that program, $20 million for GPs or $20 million for pharmacies to do more vaccinating, do more vaccinating, uh, do surges of vac vaccine vaccinations so that people can get them more often. Don't worry about the intervals between doses. Uh, it, was, it seemed to me to be naked greed dressed up as um, as sort of e equality or fairness. Uh, so these kind of attitudes that uh, themes that come through most progressive organisations these days, you know, women aren't getting enough, uh, you know, certain types of community members aren't getting their vaccines soon enough or often enough or the different types. That's the way the report was framed from the author's perspective. But when I read that same thing, I just saw buzzwords and naked greed, really, uh, for, the, for the government money to, to pump vaccines into people. Disgusting, I thought. It just seems, doesn't it, when you start matching the money to it all, it just seems that it's a, it's, it's a racket, that uh, we're onto a scam. We can never, ever be scrutinised, and it's the, the V word is the one word that you can't scrutinise, you can't question. It's almost as if it's like the um, when you go to, the, uh, to watch a comedy act and the, and, and, the, and the comedian gets up and says, if I ever fly on an aeroplane ever again, I want to get a seat inside the black box. It's the only thing they ever recover after a crash. It's the same story with the jab. It's the only part of medicine that is flawless, that's never had a mistake, it's never had a side effect, and it can only do good. And as long as we call it that, well, you're perfectly safe from that point. And people just seem to just nod along and go along with it. And nothing can be further from the truth. But again, it's this this, this sacred cow that, uh, that just cannot ever be scrutinised. And so we'll throw as much money as we can. I look at it and wonder, how is it that we ever survived this far, Richard, without the use of preventative medicine that now in 2024 doesn't even need to prevent anything to still be given the green light to be put under our skin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did, how did we ever get by just on vitamin D from the sun and from, you know, healthy, unprocessed food? How did, how did we survive long enough to invent the, the machine that made that plastic cheese? <laughs> it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. it? It's just nuts, isn't it? But yet we go along with it and we're sold, I guess, under the idea of convenience. And it is the rat race, isn't it? That you um, you get into a system. Uh, you're told that the Australian dream, which now is um, becoming more and more unrealistic for people, I suppose, under the age of 30, that they'll ever be able to um, purchase a home, let alone pay it off in their lifetimes but to think it wasn't such a great dream to think that hang on a second you telling me that i've got a i've got to work and study for the first 25 years of my life i've got to save up enough money over the next five or ten years of my life to buy a home that maybe by the time i reach retirement i would have paid it off to then sit there in my in my home and then wait for five or ten years until i reach life expectancy and that's the good part of it um no wonder there's some sort of resistance but the problem we have is that when you have a government telling you that you must be more dependent on the system and the system says oh by the way we forgot to tell you that klaus schwab's over there saying you're not going to own anything you're still going to be happy and you're going to eat the bugs how is any of that a solution that we then go along and say this institution government is the way to go here without getting to a point where we say okay enough is enough i'm taking the sign out of my window. I'm no longer supporting the system. I'm growing uh, my free will back and I'm handing in my hive-mindedness. Do you think we're ever going to get to a stage perhaps that um, that there will be a switch that people go, okay, I have had enough? I think there will be. It'll be different for every person. 
but we should never have been put in this position mm. you know in, in the early days of the of 2020 um you know it felt like the most um criminal thing just to walk down the street without a filthy rag on strapped to your face mm. you know that was that was breaking the law mm. and you know i i did that uh, and i you know it was very it was distressing it's pathetically it's pathetic pathetically small action to take but it had such importance to to re, you know to reject that mandate uh, to walk you know it was illegal to walk on the beach i live close to the beach is mm. it without a without a mask on your face in a 30 knot gale on a deserted beach in winter yeah. and it was it was that was something i could have been fined for it probably would have been you know the fine rescinded later on but nevertheless it took some courage, a, a small amount, but it seemed like a big deal. And the same same thing to go shopping without a mask, or to or to even wear a mask. But I had some that I wrote, just single words on, like resign. And that was that was a cry for for help too. There's like a like a protest about we shouldn't be put in this position. And you know, I I feel very very upset when i think of the people who had to make a choice around the vaccines against their will for whatever reason you know it might be because they had a religious objection to you know the manufacture using fetal cells or for any reason you don't even need a reason that that is the point i think that you you shouldn't need a reason at all and there should be no person who feels uh, that it's their right to ask you for your reason, even let alone mm -hmm. demand that you do it. So you know these people were, should not have been put in this position of losing their job or their livelihood or their marriage or or any other relationship because of some whimsical uh, lust for power. That's what I think it was. You know, it was just it's just power. <laughs> In fact, I'm, I'm reviewing a book at the moment, I'm re reading a, a book. It's about the scientific method and the authors are doing a fantastic job of um, of outlining what good science looks like and they've got some checklists and so on. And they they have done they have been very restrained, I think, <laughs> in in describing examples where paper, scientific papers fail and the implications for policymakers. They have steered carefully away from the big topics, but the, to me it stands out like an, an obvious example of, of, of the failure of science itself, the scientific, the, the practitioners of so-called the science and the policymakers who purported to rely on the evidence. Now, they, they have absolutely failed in all senses, in the intellectual sense, the sense of inquiry, the sense of uh, scepticism and this, and the ability to use logic uh, that, that has just put us all in a, in a terrible mess. And so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be reviewing this book favourably um, and I, I think I haven't quite worked out my angle on the review, but it'll be, um, it'll, it'll certainly draw the parallels to to the disaster that we experienced, you know, had the had our policymakers 
been au fait with the strictures of the scientific method as it should be practised, uh, this would never have happened. Uh, and a Victorian of the Year and an Order of Australia recipient would have been nowhere to be seen. He would be, he would never have fronted the cameras at all. Yes, these inconvenient truths which become the realities points again to the uh, the failure of our institutions at every level. If yeah. you can't trust the scientific method and at the same time it's never allowed to be scrutinised, it can only point to a collapse of the said institutions. Richard, how, would, how can we, do you think, we can start building institutions? Is it something that's done um, in, in, in a form of a think tank perhaps from an academic um, respect first? How should it start? I think it should start where you need it to start. So I I think we need to start with the idea of living a meaningful and fruitful and abundant life. Now, for me, that means uh, reading, uh, listening to music, uh, walking on the beach, riding my bike. If If I feel the need to join a cycling club to enhance my enjoyment, uh, then that's what I'll do, and I have done that. And to the extent that that cycling club needs association with a broader group to arrange insurance and, and permits for riding on the roads, then that's what they should do. These institutions should be built from need upwards. Uh, I don't think we should try to second guess what a cycling or a cyclist and a cycling club uh, and even a cycling association should require. But as they figure that out, they should build those. And so that's where I think we have to start from the bottom. Uh, if a gardening club needs a plot of land, then they work out how to do that. If they decide then they need a treasurer uh, to handle the money, then they do that. And, you know, if uh, at our church we're um, arranging concerts from time to time, three or four concerts, you know, clarinet um, groups or violin solos, to the extent that we find that nourishing and and enjoyable we'll arrange more of those and if we have to engage the help of you know other other people or other groups then we'll do that that's how our institutions should be built up it's such a simple way to explain it to just start with what it is that motivates you that you enjoy in your own life and then you build from there uh, it obviously is, is it's a process it's a slow process because of course everyone gets to do their own thing but there's no rush is there provided there's no one standing over you telling you how to live your life and i guess yeah. that's the hardest part now one of the things that um that's gotten up well the, the whole country's nose over the past week was the lead up to yesterday's uh, australia day mm. how would you, how did you for example celebrate australia day and how did you react to some of the um uh the different perspectives therefore of our national day i didn't do anything special for australia day um i uh, i'm saddened by the way australia day in january has become so predictably divisive and uh, angry. I I think there's a place for national pride, and uh, the uh, you know I certainly think a, a special day for the calendar is important, and also that tradition is important. And I don't think we should throw away a certain day uh, for that celebration. But at the same time, I I feel like the Australia I used to know that that celebrated these things um, joyfully has 
dis- disappeared in a sense. And so I'm I'm not that fussed really about the Australian cricket team anymore or Australia's performance at the in the Olympics or Australia's reputation. I, I'm not sure that I really like this Australia that we've, we've come so uh, come to to live in. I, it's not quite right. I, I do. I'd love it. I love this place, but um, you know, the, the, a celebration just for its own sake would feel a bit hollow. While the, our institutions are in the state they're in, you know, I I, I think that I think that our, our institutions need to step up and show the way. I don't think, uh, and we can do that from the from the ground up, and a lot of people are doing that. Uh, but I think um, I think I, I have this ambivalence now about Australia and the and the Australia Day idea because I just don't recognise the Australia I used to know. It's a very interesting and powerful take, Richard, because others may argue simply that, um, like the Australian cricket captain did, come out and say that he supported changing the date, but didn't offer anything Mm. as a possible date to change to, which for Mm. mine kind of sounded like helplessness. How can a guy who's got what many people say is the second most important job in Australia to lead the Australian Test cricket team to be paid an annual salary? I think this year he'll earn more than $6 million plus match fees uh, and then come out and say nothing to it. Uh, and then expect us to sort of get on the bandwagon, as you said, and enjoy it. I used to think that my um, lack of interest in some of the national sport was just getting older and not perhaps being that interested. But there, you have to have a form of, even at your club level, a form of tribalism, an affinity with this particular thing. But if there's no real meaning, and if the Australian cricket team can't come out on Australia Day and play cricket on Australia Day and be the Australian cricket team, mm. they might as well just be um, the men's 11 uh, and leave it at that and just, uh, and just go out there and bat and that made no sense to me either it's a disappointing uh set of circumstances that leads us to this pathway i was trying in my head to try and work out what would possibly appease the australian people if we could get um in a way and say okay let's make this a citizens um uh debate what date would we all get on board with that we can move it get over this 26th of january um captain philip story which by the way when captain philip arrived he specifically said uh we're not going to harm the the local and he was he was about um, uh, being friendly and, and building relationships and sharing rations between the convicts and the free people. And that was kind of the theme at the time. Of course, things went different beyond that. But if you fast forward to Federation, January 1, 1901, Australia becomes federated, six states, etc. And we become the country that we are today. And I kind of figured... Wouldn't it be nice if we could just settle on it? Maybe, and, I'm, and this is just for the, for the sake of talking about it, if it was January 1, we already have in, in Sydney the world's biggest fireworks display to celebrate the new year. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it was New Year's Eve and then Australia Day and perhaps we had a whole month that we got to do all the things that we know and love about Australia, the beaches, the sport, um, the, the mateship, the holidays, the, the the sausage sizzles, the barbecues, all of that great stuff. We culminate at January 26th. We have an, a month-long discussion and everyone goes to work the weekend after, the, uh, the Monday after the, the, the long weekend that was the 26th and we get on with the business of doing what we do best here in Australia, good old mateship working together and being able to come up with with something that we're all proud of, regardless of what happened in the past, 
and work out a way that we all get access to that opportunity, that egalitarianism that this country is built on. And it's one thing when Australia is divided, it's not Australia. And I think that's why I feel as uh, as disjointed and as uncomfortable as perhaps you do, Richard, that we are just not the united nation that we once always were. Yeah. Just run out of time. So we're going to go about 30 seconds for your comment. Yeah, I just think that uh, it's, it's a little bit of um, a decoy. I don't think a change in date will satisfy is, is sufficient to satisfy maybe necessary but i don't think it's going to be sufficient uh it's a presenting symptom but i don't think it's the underlying disease yeah and i i tend to think that that's the same case and the only thing i guess with my versus pat cummins that at least i was coming out and saying well let's at least have that debate because it seems you're not allowed to debate anymore uh richard kelly i want to thank you for your time today and uh, the beautiful work that you do and entertaining and it makes it very very interesting reading that someone else thinks like the rest of us we're going to take a break and be back with a brand new show after the break you're watching and listening to weekends with jason Alborn here on tnt radio